No, and it just it's just like I can't imagine these journalists, these male journalists saying anything even close to this today. No. In public. No, no. no. Like they'd they'd be insane to write some of these things. No. Hotties times eyeballs equals money. <laughs> That's so from my man Dan Shanoff. <laughs> So funny. This is, I think I'm so glad we found this. Britney Spears plus playing soccer naked equals return of the WUSA. Hello and let's fix football. This is your host Dave Lundgren and I'm joined for this special week by Evan Mateer. Evan, how's it going? I'm good, man. I'm good. It turns out, Evan, that we are back back to our normal weekly bullshit um, after what was admittedly like a kind of strange week for the show where we did that like ridiculous FIFA episode. (laughs) No, it was a great FIFA episode. (laughs) It was awesome. Uh, And... uh, so anyone who hasn't heard that yet, um, I know that I refer. It's funny because I referenced this show <laughs> in that episode. I was like, well, in our last episode. But what I was referencing was the interview with Ernesto that we're going to play at the end of the show. Everyone should listen to that. It's very cool. Um, we So we recorded that on Friday. We're just talking now about the weekend's EPL and La Liga and et cetera games and, and the, the narratives from European football. Uh, we're going to do a... Brief, uh, absolutely hilarious reading series about um, an ESPN article discussing. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna spoil it. It's absolutely awesome. So we're gonna we're gonna jump into that eventually. Uh, but over the last week, you know, there have been some important storylines. I think the place that I want to start, Evan, is discussing the uh, apparently huge drama show at Paris Saint Germain. It looks like this is or at least the media is desperate for this situation to boil over and during PSG's 2-0, unconvincing I would add 2-0 win over Lyon, there was a moment when Edison Cavani and Neymar came to you know, yell at each other about who would take a penalty and everyone's been freaking out about it yeah, so I go back and forth, Gabe, about whether this is actually a giant nothing burger, and nothing burger is a word now, I think, um, whether whether it is a giant nothing burger or whether it just should be a giant nothing burger if they had a like competent manager. Um, like, just fucking say who's going to take the penalty. Just, yeah, it seems like that's the kind of thing that should be decided and determined before you go into the game. Yeah, so like I've heard of managers before and they say they want the team to work it out and, and you know that's fine depending on the squad. But like the manager has to know the squad and know whether or not they can work it out, they have that relationship. Or if he just if you know, I'm the fucking manager and I say that, you know, Edison's the guy or Neymar's the guy and just figure it out. Um, like you can't if it's clearly a problem on the pitch. You just can't have people arguing on the pitch about this. No, and so of that's that's not nothing, but it definitely should be nothing because he should just make a call. Yeah, he should make a call. And well, I think the more interesting question is just if he makes a call and the answer is not Neymar, right? Like, does that 
force or lead Neymar to, to have some sort of meltdown because it's not like Neymar is the most emotionally stable dude, right? Like, so if Unai comes out and says, look, I understand, but ultimately Cavani has slightly better penalty stats or I have more faith in him, which there's no reason for him particularly to say that. As far as I can tell, I looked at the stats and was converted about an 85% rate, which is pretty yeah. good, uh, pretty normal. Um, like, it, you know, you miss one or two, but not normally. So, you know, it, it, it just, you know, if you were to say something like that, would Neymar have a meltdown? And um, I think the, the question is, is <laughs> right, which is maybe, right? The question sort of is, like, it, whose team is this? And I think that Unai do, should probably try to stake his claim. That being said, if I were a betting man, I would say that Unai doesn't last, last out the year at PSG because... You know, they have to win the Champions League or at least get really, really farther than last year for him not to be sacked in favor of a better, like a different coach. I yeah, I think I think that, I think that's definitely right. Like, you, you know, if they they, you know, crap out of the quarterfinals, um, it's going to be it's going to be really tough for him to hold on to his job, especially the money, you know, the money they just spent, you know, ever they just backed a dump truck up to Barcelona and poured money on top of them. So you're going to have to get something better on the pitch out of that. Yeah. Um, the like the latest report I saw just clicking around is there's rumors that Neymar like wants Cavani to be sold. And whether that's true or not, I mean, this could end with Cavani being sold. I don't think that that's a crazy outcome. They haven't bought. Uh, Mbappe, who can play, you know, who can lead the lead the line here. Uh, and so, like, I wonder if some of Cavani wanting these free kicks and, and penalties so badly is that he feels like he's going to end up being the odd man out in this attacking trio eventually. Yeah, I, I agree that that um, I think that from Cavani's standpoint, that makes a ton of sense. I think that uh, particularly for me. I wonder because I'm pretty sure PSG has a number of other attacking players that are quite good that might fit the trio a little better than Cavani. That being said, yeah. Cavani is quite good. So, like, I, I don't know. It, it's interesting. I think really what's going on is Neymar kind of sees this as his team in the way that Barcelona and Ronaldo uh, and Real Madrid are Messi and Ronaldo's team. So, like, if Ronaldo had a huge problem with anyone on the squad, you would see that player sold. If Messi had a huge problem with anyone in Barcelona, you would see that player sold. I think Neymar is trying to exercise that on PSG already. It just, he's been there for a month. He's been he's barely been there, and that's what really gets me. Like Cavani's played for PSG for years now, and yeah. so like it's it's really obnoxious if that's what's going on for Neymar to do that. And the thing is that I do not put that past Neymar. The dude is a little piece of sh- like he's a little shit. Like yeah. he just is. Like every like this is a widely known thing in soccer. He's a <clears throat> fucking brat. Like. You know, everyone talks about Ronaldo being a fucking brat, but like Neymar's a fucking brat. Like this, this whole transfer saga is an ego trip for him. Yeah, yeah. He he probably feels like he was just able to basically mold world fo- the world football transfer market he you know, to his liking. Um, and you know, to a certain extent, he was, I guess. Um, but, and I can definitely see how a 24 year old could read more into that than there really is. That's right. Also. Uh, and, but that's, that's again where like, you know, I, I guess it comes up in soccer, it comes up in like basketball all the time. Like how do you manage superstar egos? Right. Um, right. you know, how do you keep everyone happy? How do you make sure the ball, sh- you know, shared and like, that's, that's going to be a managerial job. And if they can figure it, can't figure it out, it's not going to be Neymar who's sold out of that team. That's right. And there are other managers, right, who have worked successfully that are out there on the market. I mean, 
obviously, I think the obvious answer is, and I was talking a little bit about this on Twitter today with some of the managing Madrid staff, was that the I think the obvious answer of managers that, that are out there that could do this is uh, Carlo Ancelotti at Bayern. That, that was my first, my first thought was he's I, not, he's wanting out of, he's wanting out of Bayern right now. Um, like that, that relationship is in trouble. Yeah. Like he's a perfect person to land at PSG. I, I, I would be very worried as a Madrid fan watching Ancelotti land at PSG just because I think he would do a really good job of allowing for the creativity of the attack of the attack and still like putting out a solid defense and uh, enforcing order in his side in a way that you know it's not clear yet whether Unai can do. I I actually love Unai as a manager. I just think that. It's interesting. I actually wanted Unai Emery to be the Spain manager and not uh, not <laughs> PSG um, because yeah. he was very good uh, when he when he was at Valencia and, and a couple other teams that he that he coached and I really liked them. And PSG, he was at Sevilla too. PSG uh, and his Sevilla team, by the way, won back to back UEFA uh, uh, UC uh, UEFA Cups. So very good manager, very good cup manager. Um, but not clear whether he'd ever proven that he could manage egos in the way that's required in a team that includes Neymar. Uh, just like he he was considered for the Barca job for a little bit, but it was uh, again I was never sure that he could manage the egos. And look at someone else who was never clear whether he could manage the ego. Luis Enrique came to Barcelona, had one very successful season, but the next season absolutely flamed out because he couldn't manage the different competing egos. And is that partially because of Neymar or? I mean, I, well, I that, and that's I think that's the like the closing question here is we keep saying that it's the manager's job to manage egos and it's true it is but that's only to the extent that the ego can be managed and so this is all assuming that Neymar can be managed and like 22 year old Neymar on a team with Messi you know one of the best players of all time is a little bit different than 24 or five year old Neymar after his half billion right. euro move. And now being told he's the most expensive player, like it's a different situation. Yeah, and it, Neymar also has to, you know, not be a little bitch. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's true. If he would be less of a little piece of shit, then it would be a lot easier to, you know, talk about him in this conversation with Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi as the best players in the world. But he's being such a little shit, and his like he's forcing his move out of like this incredibly all-time team. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I, uh, anyways, that's, that's kind of where we are. I, uh, I fucking, I, I really, it's funny cause now there've been some reports that perhaps there was a clause included in Neymar's contract with PSG that would force them to t- have a conversation with Real Madrid about a move if Neymar were to want it. But like everything I'm seeing from this player suggests that the ethic and ethos that Zidane is trying to build at Real Madrid doesn't really jive with more than one like kind of prima donna player and as long as Ronaldo is there I just don't I can't imagine that Neymar would work with him it doesn't seem to culturally match and the kind of prima donna that Ronaldo is I think is a very different kind of prima donna than Neymar is seeming to be and I don't know maybe that's just a little bit of I I agree with that I, I I I think that Ronaldo's prima donna style is is much more about like oh well I I have to win I want to score, but more important even than that is like winning, right? And it's not. Yeah, he's frustrated when people don't play up to what his yeah. standards are because he's ridiculously good and he wants everyone to be as good as he is that they always win. 
Right, and he that and it's an annoying and infuriating thing for people who are watching the games to have him throw his hands up when you know someone doesn't score or grab like doesn't give him the perfect pass or whatever. But like Neymar's style is much more like yeah, it seems so far to be much more focused on him and what he can pr- provide. Anyway, so that's all. I mean, that's all we have to say about PSG for now. Let's quickly uh, touch on. Uh, La Liga, because the the more interesting storylines are out of La Liga right now. Um, Usman Dembele, Barca's 120, 40 million euro man, uh, is injured, badly injured in the game against Hatafe. Uh, Barcelona is trying to blame Hatafe for it, even though it was a non-contact injury. They basically oh said, yeah, yeah, shut the fuck up about that. It's a classic Barcelona thing to say that the pitch was fucked up. So it's shut up. Just shut up. Shut up. Just shut it's up. Bad luck. It's it just he got injured. Running and it happens. Like he he tore his hamstring tendon. He's going to be out for three to four months. Uh, it sucks. You know, we've seen people like Bale. We've seen other people have these kind of shitty injuries, and they suck, and they linger, and they recur if you rush it. So the the best thing they can do is not fucking rush it. And uh, it looks like Gerard Delefeu and Paulinho will be uh, stepping into his place. um, Powerhouse. 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 Um, Goats. Paulinho actually, and this is the other part that I wanted to mention, Paulinho scored uh, to win the game for Barca yeah. against Hitafe hilariously. And I just, I want to also mention that it's, I still think it's funny that they paid for Paulinho. He does still suck. And it doesn't matter because he's playing next to Messi. Like it just, and Luis Suarez, like the, you're gonna, you're, if you're even a competent attacking player, you're gonna thrive in that position. No, fuck. I would, I would get chances. I mean, right. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. I wouldn't score them, but we'd get the chances. We'd so get you're the chance. If you're a competent player, you're going to do it. And, you know, also right now, Messi is basically playing out of his out of his mind. Uh, today, so we before we recorded, I watched some of the Barcelona against Abar match, and Messi scored four goals. Messi is not going to keep playing like this. So it's, it's, it's important for Paulinho and these other players to... Step it up when there's kind of an off game, and that's why you have players of the talent of Dembele, of Neymar before, is for the games when Messi isn't playing out of his mind. Now Messi is good enough to play for most of the season at a level where he's scoring two or three goals a game, but it's just simply not going to happen sometimes, and so they're going to need other players to step up, and we haven't seen them get to that place yet. So it'll be interesting to see. I would follow Barca closely to see what happens when, you know, there's a game where Messi can't start or gets rotated or you know, just hits the post six times. Like, if yeah. that happens, like, who else on that team is going to score? Well, it might be Suarez, but some, you know, he hasn't been quite at the same level. So it'll be interesting to see going forward. That being said, Barca has a four-point lead, which is a big deal in La Liga right now. Uh, obviously, they're I mean, going to drop points eventually. Um, but, and they have to, they're, they're going to have to play Madrid, who, gonna, right. you know, beat the ever-loving piss out of them in the... Uh, um, in the preseason cup, whichever cup that was, super cup, right? And That's it was, a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a joke cup. It was a game where both sides started what was, you know, their best eleven in each game. So, and Gabe, Gabe on the on the Dembele injury, I just want to say that like so like way back ancient history, let's fix football episode one, we talked yeah, about the the transfer fees for these young players, and I said something about how like you know we're gonna find out whether or not the risk actually justifies paying this much money for young undeveloped talent. And, you know, part of what I meant there was exactly what's happening with Dembele here. These are 18 year old kids. Their bodies are not fully developed yet. 
And it, they do not have a proven track record of being able to stay on the pitch. And so when you buy or when you when you sign an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid, and we see this all the time in every sport, right? There's a, just a huge chance that they are never able to play day-to-day a professional sport, that their bodies don't develop and they can't do it. And that like so that could you know I'm not saying that's gonna happen to Dembele, but I'm saying that it's not a good sign early on, it's not a good start. And assuming that it doesn't pan out, that's 140 million euros down the drain. Um, that that's the type of risk that I'm not sure is sustainable in a world football transfer market for these young players. That you know the arms race has just gotten out of hand. The the risk profile just doesn't justify spending like that. Exactly, and that's something that we've we've discussed. And this is exactly why. And hopefully, stuff like this will remind teams why they don't drop hundreds of millions of dollars on unproven 18-year-olds. Not because they are not eventually maybe going to be very good, but just because like all you need. I mean, like we've seen so many players have one major injury and never be the same again. And I'm not saying that's going to happen with Dembele. And you know, God knows, like we've seen even Messi have like seasons where he was he was hampered by injuries but the problem with this kind of uh hamstring injury is that they are fucking incredibly hard to recover from i mean if i'm barcelona i shut him down i just shut him down just don't play him this year yeah exactly because you're you're talking about four months right so you're talking about him not coming back until at best january um some sometime uh and, you know, then he's going to have to take time to get fit. So what we're talking him really getting back into matches, like sometime in February, if there's no setbacks, just s- shut the kid down and let him heal. Exactly. That's what I do. I do. Uh, okay. Next game in La Liga was very good. Um, right. It was good for me. Real Madrid took on uh, Real Sociedad. And normally this isn't, you know, this isn't a big game, but this one was this season because Real Sociedad has been one of the best teams in La Liga. They were absolutely on fire. They hadn't dropped any points. They'd outscored their opponents by huge margins. They're a team also, interestingly, Evan, featuring three different Real Madrid, ex-Real Madrid youth products. Um, people don't talk very much about Real Madrid's academy because it hasn't produced Xavi and Iniesta, but it's actually produced more uh, professional top-tier soccer players than any other academy in Europe, and this is no different with um, you know, three different ones for uh, Real Sociedad playing very well. Uh, and Madrid went to Real Sociedad, played an incredibly, incredibly strong game, and it featured uh, absolute control for Madrid for most of the first half with... Um, and uh, Zidane started Borja Mayoral, who is a 18-year-old uh, academy product at striker, and he created the first two goals, the first by literally scoring it, the second one by bla- <clears throat> bashing a pass in to Isco that someone accidentally directed into uh, Real Sociedad's game, uh, goal. And then I think the most important part of the match, Isco sent a long ball over the top uh, for Gareth Bale, who just absolutely demolished his Real Sociedad defender. He outran him at a 60-meter pace where he hit 35 kilometers an hour, uh, coming from a few meters behind the dude to take the ball and then chip the keeper very beautifully. Beautiful goal from Bale. Reminds everyone, and it should, you know, tamp down the intensity of the way Real Madrid fans and certain sectors of the media have been coming at him. Though it's interesting, Evan, because (laughs) we've seen the same people that were just criticizing him really aggressively uh, come at him this week and ask Zidane all these questions about, well, is Bale really good uh, unless if you're not playing on the counter? Like, is he really that good a player in any other circumstance? 
uh, and Zidane has basically said, Bale's a very complete player. I really like him. And something that Keon and I always talk about, Evan, is that Bale's actually really good on defense. It's where he made his mark originally coming He was a up. left back, for the love of God. And he brings a hugely important part to Madrid's defensive scheme when they do the high press and when they do a low press. He's a, he's a really complete player, and it's there's a crusade going on in the Spanish media to attack him. And I remember it in... It started actually with uh, Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, um, and uh, you know they they just do this sometimes. So uh, last season it wasn't Bale actually, it was Hamas, uh, and uh, it's you know it's just if they feel that there's competition for a player who they think is you know a Spanish player who they think is equally good, they're going to try to drive out the foreign player in, in favor of the Spaniard. But I just especially the English speaker. Yeah, I mean one of the big things they keep saying is fucking. So fucking racist. They never fucking deal with it. They just like, well, he, he doesn't, doesn't even speak, know how to say gracias. He game. doesn't speak Spanish. It's like, he first of all, Spanish. it's not fucking true, you douchebag. And then second of all, there's so many players on the team that don't speak to you in Spanish. Like, oh, well, I couldn't do an interview with Bale in Spanish. It's like, dude, you tried to interview Modric and Kroos in Sp- and Casemiro in Spanish and none of them could speak to you. So, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, Karim Benzema barely speaks Spanish, and he's been there longer than Bale. Uh, anyway, so that's where we are in La Liga. Madrid is four points back. Uh, I'm not too worried as a Madrid fan. It's a long season. Uh, and Barca, you know, look, I, I don't think they've really had too much, uh, you know, too much adversity yet. And Madrid, you know, obviously has been playing without their full strength. So... We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I mean, obviously, luck plays a huge part of this. So, uh, moving on to the Premier League, nothing really fucking happened. United four, Everton zero. This is the main game this week. Uh, Chelsea. You know what we learned from that game, Gabe? We learned that Everton is bad, and I think that we already kind of knew because Spurs did the same thing. They thrashed Everton last uh, last week, and Everton fucking blows. They didn't replace Lukaku. They bought. They spent a lot of money on really fucking slow players who can't run. Uh, and they are slow, and they are old, and they are bad. Exactly. And Wayne Rooney, uh, I, I, he was caught drunk driving. I know we mentioned this, but I still think it's really funny because Wayne Rooney is basically just like a fucking uh, uh, skinhead fan that they pulled down from the sidelines and told to get in the pitch and fight people. Like that's, I mean, I know he's much. He's actually like quite a good player in his prime. He had a like, reasonably, that's what he had a reasonably like. good like, game. And he had, he had like an okay game against United. He was, he was definitely the most dangerous player I think um, in Everton's attack. But then they had to take him out like sixty fifth minutes. He was gassed. Uh, as you would expect if you were up drinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Chelsea zero, Arsenal zero. Kind of boring match. Our friend Ernesto, who you're going to hear from later, was actually on the sidelines of that game, Evan. Just oh, that's really, I didn't know that. That's cool. Um, yeah, fuck him. C- City beat the piss out of Watford at six to nothing. Uh, Liverpool and Spurs both had unimpressive draws. Um, oh, fuck Spurs. God, I, why, why did I choose this team? So tell me, tell me how you felt about just really quickly about the Spurs game. Um, I felt like this that this team play, sometimes plays down to their competition and just struggles to to break down a bunkered in team. And they seem to really want to like the idea that they could play the match against Dortmund that they played at midweek before that Swansea match, and where they were they were irresistible on on the attack. And then they can't they can't even get they they even have they had fucking like two chances against Swansea. It was it was infuriating. 
Yeah, it, they did not. They did not impress. Though it's funny because it's one of those matches where like it just felt like they were tired, Evan. Like I don't know. Like one of the things about the English calendar is that later in the season it does feel like these teams get tired, but it mm. seems a little early for a team to be tired. No, like I said, I I I don't really know if they were tired. They seemed frustrated. And so I think what happens because they're still a pretty young side, though it's getting they're getting a little old for us to keep calling them young. They're mostly like 24 years old now, um, but so they're still kind of a young side. And I think they were on a high coming out of the Dortmund game. They come in. Swansea is a competent defending Premier League side. They bunkered in, and when they didn't get a goal in the first, you know, 25, 30 minutes, they were really frustrated. And then they kind of, you know, they were pressing. It's kind of like the hitter that's pressing too hard. For a, for a hit. I think that was kind of happening with Spurs is they were trying really stupid shit that wasn't coming off rather than just playing their game and letting a goal come to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So let's um, – nothing happened out of the ordinary. Italy, all the good teams won, just FYI. I, I wanted to toss that because I, nominally we do discuss all the other teams. Bayern beat up um, a couple of different teams this week. Hamas- we, will, we will discuss other leagues when there are, like, things to discuss. Exactly, exactly. And if the listeners demand it, Right. If you want us to talk more about Germany or whatever, like that's fine. Um, I won't talk about any leagues that aren't in the top four. Sorry, I I just don't have time to talk about Portugal or even you know like Belgium, Switzerland. Not even really France. I don't. I mean France. Yeah, we really. No, I'm not going to talk about anyone that's not PSG in France. We already talked. You already know our opinions on on French French. soccer. We're not going to talk about that. I we I remember that we had this. This just to just to spark notes it. Neither of us are interested in watching a French game that doesn't include PSG. It's just not. not sorry, not at all. league not at all. Um All right, so here's our reading series. Our let's fix football week reading series for this week. It absolutely owns. It's a uh, ESPN article from. I actually don't know the exact date, but it's from the early 2000s, and it is a mail or, or some sort of round writers roundtable talking about Seth Blatter's comment. Uh, that so is. to preface, Gabe, this was from ESPN's page two, which people who remember like the history of the ESPN.com, um, the uh, the page two was always a place where it was less straight sports coverage, more kind of freewheeling, casual discussion by writers. There was a lot of pop culture references. Yeah, Bill, I Bill think Bill Simmons, S- yeah, I was Bill say, Simmons yeah, I was got his him. start in page two, I think. Right. So this is on uh, page two. Um, which is this kind of pop culture, kind of, you know, back pagey shit. And this hasn't, I've never seen anything quite as back pagey, like the, what is uh, on the, on the second, like the second, like the second to last page of like fucking British tabloids that just have porn. Well, this is basically the ESPN <laughs> version of that. So, uh, those of you who are connoisseurs of Set Blotter, like myself know that back in the day, Set Blotter, uh, talked a little bit about how to make people watch the women's game more. So his very, my very favorite quote of his was uh, that women's soccer players should start wearing quote, tighter shorts to quote unquote, to generate more interest in their sport. Uh, And so the ESPN page two columnist group, which appears to include one woman and about seven men, uh, are going to discuss whether actually that's a correct thing to say. <laughs> so we're just going to let's just let's just let's just dive 
dive right in. And so I'm we're going to just go and kind of colloquy. Um, I'm going to read the title and then we're going to read the title and the person that said it and then just kind of a the best quote from their part of this article. All right. And, and it should be said that they so the, the way this is structured is, you know, they kind of pose the situation up front. A, a the woman columnist makes kind of a lengthy statement and then the seven dudes in turn get to say something about her statement. And uh, so I'm not going to read the whole women's statement, but you can e- exactly write what, what you would expect. So, dear Sep, just shut up, says Melanie Jackson. Melanie basically says, uh, the notion that skimpier uniforms would attract more sponsors or fans to the game is ridiculous. If that's the case, women's college volleyball uh, and swimming, right, two sports where they wear super skimpy outfits would be packing gyms and pool houses. I think that's, that is almost prima facie owned. Like, I don't think there's anything else more to say, personally. Like, that's basically it. If skimpier shirts had anything to do with women's sports popularity, then why is women's college basketball, based on attendance figures and revenue nationwide, by far the most popular women's sports in the country? Another extremely good point. All right. Well, that's before you've heard from Mr. Ralph Wiley, Gabe, who, in his entry, <laughs> you look, so do we, uh, says that take a league of their own. Baseball babes were encouraged to play in skirts to lure in the suckers. Desperation move, sure, but unless I'm mistaken, aren't these desperate times for women's soccers? One's first thought is simply this, Madonna, da Rossi, niet. No, I'm saying Madonna, da Rossi, niet. Just like in that, oh, it's so bad. I I messed it up. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's it's all right. It's all right because it's it's even skeevier the way uh, the way I said it because it comes off really fucking disgusting. Uh, Yeah, really gross. Literally, like, well, look, everyone knows that women's soccer is about to fail, so all you need to do is just make it porn, and maybe it won't. Uh, So, Dan Shinoff is totally in agreement with uh, with Mr. Wiley. And he says, I just, I have, I almost have to read all of this, Evan. It's so good. All right. All right. Uh, All right. Ready? Mel, you make some solid points, but you too easily dismiss or ignore the quote Kornikova factor. And just quickly, Kornikova was a tennis player in the early 2000s who was also sort of a porn star. Uh, She was fucking terrible at tennis. Yeah, really bad. But you make you dismiss the Kornikova factor. Everyone readily agrees she's a terrible player, yet she's arguably the most popular female athlete in the world precisely because of her sex appeal. Women's tennis hasn't exactly shied away from playing off its players' looks. Look at the LPGA, making a concerted, if controversial, effort to up its, quote, hottie quotient. Understanding Shanoff's mother-of-all-male marketing equations. Apparently this is a thing. Quote, Hotties at H times eyeballs I equals money dollar sign. Whoo! Well, you know, David Schoenfield actually think that that's a pretty good start to how to think about this problem. And in his entry, today's math um, <laughs> has has some suggestions for how you can expand. Oh my a- god, this is so good! <laughs> oh my god, about this. One. So he proposes a few <laughs> other equations, Serena. <laughs> Plus, boobs falling out of her shirt equals bigger ratings. <laughs> Especially in the Wiley household. Ha ha, got him. Uh, what? <laughs> Britney Spears plus plus playing soccer naked equals return of the oh W. This is literally just if they just, just make it porn at this point. 
So Michelle Wee plus breaking up Tiger's engagement. By the way, Michelle Wee in this, I think, is at this time is like, isn't she like 14 years old? So yeah, this is really yeah, that's messed up. That's a weird thing. It's rating ever the Masters. Anna Kornikova plus mud wrestling. These guys think about Kornikova a lot. Yeah, equals yeah. Super Bowl counter programming special 2007. Of course, sex sells, whether it's shampoo commercial, beer ads, men, MTV, men's magazines, or sports. This is so this is so fucking dumb. I love that. This is so fucking dumb, and it's so indicative of the time period that we're talking about because it's like this guy, these people literally think that if they just ran a fucking porn of Anna Kornikova getting railed like in a j- jacuzzi, that pe- more people would watch it than the Super Bowl, which is the dumbest shit. Like, I know this is sort of a joke, but like they actually base like if, if, if you actually take some of these arguments to the logical extreme, they're basically just saying that the best the best thing that could any ever happen to any product is if they just fucking featured it in a porno. Um, yeah. Today's math. Re, uh, reply to today's math says from Eric Neal. Uh, oh my God, I forgot this one's awesome. Also, all right, some folks are rightly defending the sport on its merits. Others are inevitably getting caught up in er uh, visualization exercises. God damn it! But ain't nobody ignoring it outright right now. God fuck him. That's basically saying fucking Seth Blatter is good for bringing this up because now everyone at least is talking about it, which is the theme of this entire thing. God, so, okay, so the next guy, Patrick Harubi. I don't know how the fuck you say that. He would like you to know that sex sells, but sex doesn't always sell. Sex sells, but not uniformly. Otherwise, mm. all of us would be reading Penthouse for the articles, sipping Miller Lite, limited edition cat fight long necks, and eagerly awaiting next week's episode of NBC's Coupling. And it seems to me, first of all, that these guys are actually reading Penthouse a lot. Yeah, it does, right? Like, the, the, but, but this guy says, you know, it depends whether or not sex sells. It really depends. Sex appeal is fluid. Ha. Uh, you know, some fans want it, but some people don't. So who's to say the scantily clad female soccer players would generate enough revenue to pay the stadium's electric bill, particularly in an o- already overcrowded marketplace? This section. dude makes the only good opinion so far other than the, the first woman when he says, uh, a sports league that peddles sex appeal risks self-marginalization. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> How can no one have thought of that so far? It's so fucking dumb. Like, I can't deal with this shit. Like... And oh, and by the way, he then brings up Anna Kornikova again because these guys just can't fucking let that be. These guys all sit around fucking jerking off to pictures, fucking play, not even picture, like they're not even movies, like they don't even have the internet yet. So they're just fucking tugging off to pictures of Anna Korva in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, like my fucking uncle. Uh, Melanie, you're wrong. This is a really good title from this dude. It's just. I think, you know, Gabe, I really don't like the word. (laughs) I don't. I really don't like the word mansplain too terribly much. But here we go. Here we go. All right, you lost me, Melanie. <laughs> I just. I just. I can't. I can't. So basically, this argument is uh, summed up uh, right here. Male athletes are sold as hetero studs. All, all those pumped, scowling, tood and tat pictures set the crapulent buffalo wings on the couch a quiver. <laughs> Same deal with women, who apparently, even in these uh, L-word times, I just, uh, all right, we're just going to blast past that because. Yeah, no. Have to be, 
They have to be presented as at least theoretically available. This is, I'm not sure about the tight pants, but Blotter's attempt to get the allure crowd aboard makes some sense to me. Ultimately, it will be women, gay, straight, teens, and groups of moms on a night out who can make a league work if the sport makes a real effort to woo them instead of trying for the dateless jerks who have one hand on the remote. What? What the fuck? So he says all this bullshit. It's just incredible. He says all of this bullshit uh, about uh, how actually you do have to sell sex. And then he says he names a fucking shitload of groups that aren't going to be interested in the sex aspect of it. Like, he's literally, like, uh, and the fucking one hand on the remote, he's literally talking about dudes who sit off and jerk off to cable TV. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, look, Alan Grant is up next, and he actually says, I think, the, 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 he actually makes the only actually acceptable response of any of the dudes to Sepp Blatter's comments. It says, Sepp Blatter's proposal accomplished one thing. It devalued the game and those who play it. Done. You can stop there. That's it. Uh, that's he, the answer. He got that's, that's the, answer. the answer. Yep. And uh, he goes on to say some other stuff, but that you know what? Matter, because he said a good thing. That's it. I'm willing to. I'm willing to to move on from Alan on that because he says some other somewhat stupid things after that. But I'm not going to read them. So you can you can go on with Chuck now. All right. So Chuck responds: Is it sex or is it a- advertising? And this is a this is a different this is a different thing that I don't think really deserves that much time. But uh, he also I just want to mention also that he uses. Okay, I'm just going to quickly read this sentence. It's not actually his argument, but it's obvious to me that, for instance, 15 minutes of tortuous pillow talk with Anna Kornikova would be way too high a price to pay for a night of sexual ecstasy. I mean, how do you, in all seriousness, like, write that? For, like, not even, like, how do you, ah, it just, like, like all, you that, know, how do you, I, I'd bang her, but if, if I didn't have to talk to her, that's, am I right, buddy? It's literally like, that's literally what he's saying. But then also, how do you write, like, how do you sit down at a computer or at a typewriter or the fuck these people are writing and then you fucking write that? It's incredible. Hey, Gabe, uh, how outraged do you think these guys pretended to be about things Donald Trump said on the campaign trail? Dude, it's so true. And like, what's, it's amazing, like, thinking, like, reading this shit reminds us. And just like, it's like. I don't know if you guys listen or ever like go back and rewatch like sitcoms from the nineties, but like do it sometimes and think hard about like, well, they're like making constant gay jokes. Like uh, fucking friends for the first like six seasons is just like one long gay joke. (laughs) And like, it's, it's something shit that we like, first of all, it's hacky and, and, and not funny now, like in retrospect, but it's also like, this is kind of where we were. And now we're all pretending to be pissed off when like people, you know, say douchey stuff when you were like, fucking bladder is right. Like, he's basically right. Women should fucking be naked and have threesomes on the pitch. And like, we'd all beat off to it. And that's a better model for women's soccer. Um, so yeah, that's his, his basic piece is, uh, he's, oh my God. All right. Uh, let, all right, seriously, and here's a great bit of early 2000s uh, uh, cultural reference. Seriously, I doubt bladder really believes any male goon will skip an episode of quote, the man show. To see any woman play soccer, no matter how they dress. My guess God. is, Sepp is thinking something like this. What what was it that changed the NBA from a marginally profitable amusement into a multinational financial juggernaut? The shoe industry. Billions of dollars in advertisements. So maybe some industry could do the same for soccer. Let's see how now our shoes are taken. What else could we sell? Headbands, knee pads, goalie gloves. I know, fucking lip gloss, sportswear. 
You know what's great about that section, Gabe, is he managed to take a section where mostly they're just being sexist and then actually put like a fairly racist interpretation of how the NBA became bi- uh, big into his sexist reply. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's like bringing all the different elements that we are have been making fun of this whole time into one little sentence. It's really good. <laughs> really into it. I also really like the fucking like, and of course he like led it with the Anna Kornikova thing. I just can't get over it. All right, let's move on. We have only a couple left. And the best thing is still to, still to come. The last one from me, uh, which is Melanie's response, which is, uh, really upsetting. So go ahead. Yeah. Evan. So okay. So uh, so Jerry Hershey with an I. Um, chimes in, and what is what does Jerry even say? Um, not very much. Not very <laughs> interesting. Put baggy pants to NBA players back in the wee satin shorts worn by the stilts of your, and pump up the female fan demographic. Nah, basically, Jerry. Basically, I think is Jerry a girl or a guy? It's not clear to me. It's not clear uh, the gender of Jerry. Well, any any anyway, Jerry basically thinks it wouldn't work, and then if it's bad business, then it's a stupid thing to say. Well, it's also a fucking horribly misogynist thing to say that demeans the sport generally. But fair enough, Jerry. If you feel that way, that's that's a fair thing to say. All right. Melanie, the original person who said, wow, like maybe you shouldn't say this about women's soccer, uh, responds to all of these, all of these emails by saying all good points, period. (laughs) But Neil really hit it on the head. Neil, if you remember, is the guy that said, well, at least we're talking about soccer. And all good points, Neil really hit it on the head. Soccer, regardless of the reason, is making another appearance at the water cooler. That, to me, is a very good thing. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I just want to say, mission accomplished from Seth Blotter, the head of the fucking soccer federation, like the entire governing uh-huh. body of the sport, saying that your gender should just wear tighter pants tighter when pants. they play soccer. It's yeah. a good thing. And it got it's also infuriating in context of what really happened with the Women's World Cup, which is that it actually was really successful just the yeah. last couple World Cups. It was a great product on the pitch. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It's a distinctive game from the male game. Um, and, and it's really cool on the merits. And it's totally cool on the merits. And you've got really millions and millions of people that are extremely into the, the women's game that has absolutely nothing to do with the way these women look. It, it really, you know, it, it's just so little about that. It's, it's a sport that stands up for itself. And that, that is, is, you know, it's based on, on the product that they eventually put out and in no small, and like, it's, it's, the funny thing is you coming off this episode talking about how FIFA likes to pretend that it did this, but it didn't, right? Like it's coming off this institutional and outward and intense opposition from the governing body of the sport uh, to, to them developing a real league. And really we're in this position that, that we are because uh, individual national federations cared enough to actually put a good product on the pitch. That's why the USA, that's why Japan, that's why a couple other countries have put out good teams. And those teams, when they play each other, produce very exciting, interesting soccer. And that the US Japan match, I've seen a couple of them now and they're fucking great. They're really, really really good. good. That's really, no. they're really good. All right, well. Uh, Fuck you're, off, 2002 ESPN. It was, I, I hope you all liked that. I had a very fun time reading that. It was extremely funny. We'll link to it on the site and uh, tweet it out, this link, so you all can enjoy it. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to just jump right into our uh, pre-taped interview section. All right.
Hello and welcome to the Let's Fix Football podcast. This is our pre-taped interview segment. Um, I'm Gabe Leslie, your host, joined as usually by Evan Mateer. I know, like, uh, you just heard us talking, if you're listening to the actual show. Sorry, this is for um, people joining us from the Managing Madrid podcast. It's our first crossover episode, uh, and we are here today to talk about what is arguably um, my favorite topic to talk about, which is how much FIFA fucking sucks. And joining us is a good friend of mine, um, Ernesto Alvarado. Ernesto is a foreign corrupt practices attorney based in Paris who specializes, like we said, in um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act uh, for Hughes, Hubbard & Reed, um, an American law firm. Uh, Ernesto and I are good friends, and uh, Ernesto, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of uh, managing Madrid, and obviously me and you always talk uh, really good footy, so I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so just to, for, uh, uh, for, to clarify, Ernesto is a fan of Fiorentina in Italy, and he follows Real Madrid because his dad is a big fan. Um, so that's, uh, that's where his sporting loyalties lie. I know a lot of people, a lot of you are going to probably complain about, uh, we're going to complain about that if I didn't mention it uh, up front. <laughs> Uh, so we're here to talk. Um, I know. So anyone who who listened to our first couple episodes know that Evan and I have spent a while ripping on FIFA. And in fact, this may in, be coming out after our special episode where we've talked about uh, the FIFA movie, which we're gonna we're, we actually haven't recorded that yet, but that's gonna come out soon too. So you know that we fucking hate FIFA. And this uh, this episode should give you a good understanding why. So. Ernesto, uh, why don't we just jump right in? So one of the things that we saw in recent years was FIFA being uh, prosecuted or at least investigated by the United States government. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. So basically, um, you know, FIFA by itself, something to kind of give as a general overview of the context of of why FIFA is generally important, not just uh, in football matters, but recently in legal matters and sort of in governance uh, globally, is just the sheer scope and size of FIFA, right? So um, I read, I was reading a, an article a few months back about FIFA, and uh, the author noted that apart from being admitted to the UN, uh, membership to FIFA is one of the clearest signals that a country's status as a nation state uh, has been recognized by the international community, which is just mind blowing to me that. Uh, an athletic uh, yeah. uh, a sort of entity is able to have that sort of weight behind it, but it's true. I mean, they have more uh, members than the than, than the UN. They have 209 member associations from six different regions, and they make uh, you know in, in years years where they host, they host uh, the World Cup, Cup they make they about 4.4 billion dollars, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's uh, it's it's a massive massive organization, and so. FIFA itself, you know, is no sort of, as you mentioned, is no sort of um, stranger to allegations of corruption and bribery, um, you know, beginning with Sepp Blatter sort of reign uh, over the over the organization in 1999 when his vote, you know, when when, when the FIFA organization voted for him in uh, into 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 his position as, as president. There were allegations of bribery in order to sway votes, things like that. So all the way uh, back to the beginning of the Blatter tenure, this has been absolutely. going on. Absolutely. In 2002, uh, his secretary general, Michel uh, Rufinin, uh, he alleged that due to Seth Blatter's mismanagement and corruption, uh, 
the result was five hundred million dollars uh, of missing of missing revenue from the sort of coffers of, of, of people. Which is insane to me. That's an insane uh, amount that's, of money. Yeah. Uh, and, go ahead. Sorry. And so, what a lot of what a lot of sort of allegations that are now coming out as we're getting sort of a clear picture of this is that Seth Blatter pretty much took advantage of of his role and took advantage of essentially what 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 really does annoy your average soccer fan uh, like myself and, and, and you, Gabe, is, is that we have uh, this sort of desire to keep the game pure. And Seth Blatter instead was using it in order to advance his sort of personal uh, endeavors. And so that sort of is kind of where uh, that was sort of the pin where we kind of had everything in the context prior to the U.S. being involved in the investigations and things like that. And then generally, I mean, soccer has, has had a very rough go of of uh, corruption and bribery issues, um, you know, beginning with match, match fixing uh, connected to criminal organizations. Um, you know, we've had sort of World Cup qualifiers, Gold Cup uh, games like that that have been verified that players have uh, thrown the game away for for uh, you know for betting purposes for organized crime, and then also the big one that sort of had a pretty big influence on my sort of uh, understanding of corruption in football was um, the Calciopoli scandal in, right. in Italy where it was sort of rampant match-fixing across we, the board. Why don't you quickly explain to everyone, because this is a uh, U.S. and kind of you know, Europe, generally European, this is a very important event in the history of football generally uh, mm-hmm. because it was really the catalyst that uh, I think, you know, and, and maybe maybe historic that this isn't correct, but my, my feeling is that Calciopoli was the kind of catalyst that led to a lot of people kind of jumping in on the corruption in football bandwagon, or just not, not bandwagon, but like jumping in on investigating this stuff and seeing how big of an issue this was, not just at the National Federation level, but, gen- like, but, but on a much broader level, too. And so basically, uh, the entire top level of Italian teams were involved in a max match fixing scandal. Correct. Yep. It was, if you could sort of uh, imagine something, it would be akin to sort of wrestling where everyone except for the fans would know the ultimate result of, of the matches. Um, and, and so uh, there was a Mr. Moji who was the, um, <clears throat> who was a, a director at uh, Juventus uh, who was sort of like the mastermind in this trying to, uh, obtain sort of favorable refereeing, uh, just generally talking to teams in order to try to ensure that uh, certain results would be guaranteed. And sort of that trickled down from Juventus down to uh, Inter Milan, AC Milan, unfortunately, my beloved Fiorentina. Uh, and so what happened was when this all came out, it was just a shock to everyone's system. Just It would be akin to something like the NFL all of a sudden being rigged and you kind of realizing that uh, the Patriots – uh, you know, the Patriots comeback last year was actually all sort of set up, you know, it's, it's, and, and... it's funny because like you're saying that and I actually that sounds like something that would have totally happened. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually am not sure. I'm not convinced at all that that didn't happen. And we should probably <laughs> keep that open. Yeah, I, I think we shouldn't include the possibility of that really. I mean, it's not like so one of the things that we also like to say, Ernesto, is that uh if Americans could, any soccer fan like that understands this this kind of the way that FIFA operates could trade the organizational dysfunction of the NFL for what goes on in FIFA. They would do it in a heartbeat, and that's like sounds really aggressive to all these Americans. But actually, like FIFA is on another plane uh, of corruption from and and mismanagement from where the NFL is. And with that, let's let's pop into um, the more recent case. So. Uh, this this surrounds the 
uh, bids for the World Cup. Everyone, so it's interesting. It's been kind of an open secret in FIFA and soccer circles for a while that uh, that that bags of cash basically change hands, and that you know federations buy World Cup bids because. Um, you know, unlike some country, in a, you know, unlike some competitions, actually, World Cup bids are extremely lucrative for the country. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if w- when we look at uh, the impact that the countries have, obviously, you have the, the the side effect at the end of the of the World Cup, where you have certain situations like Brazil and their their famed uh, stadium in the jungle, where you have these white elephants, right, that are sort of abandoned and and you know they you right. know, they can't really do much with them, but. Uh, on another on another scale, and prior to probably these past two World Cups, well, the World Cup or being able to host the World Cup would give a massive, massive boom uh, to a country through you know tourism, through the development of infrastructure. You know, all of a sudden politicians want to clear up as much money as possible to build stadiums, but then you know with those stadiums come roads, comes uh, all types of construction, and that's obviously not to say that you know at the end of the day these things do have a counter. In a counteracting effect on countries like Brazil, but for the most part, the theory is is that the that this these World Cups would be lucrative to both the host nation and also to to FIFA. And, and if so, not, like to the host nation generally and their economy generally, it is extremely lucrative to the people who are involved in running the damn things, right? Which is why you end up with these kind of. Uh, countries run by oligarchies bidding so much money and bribing people to get it because the lucrative contracts and the advertising money and all these different things that are flowing into their country are uh, are extremely easy to embezzle, essentially. Uh, and that brings us to the uh, most recent scandal <laughs> where uh, FIFA awarded bids to two of the least pleasant countries in the history of places to even bid for FIFA World Cups, uh, Russia in 2018, and then even worse, uh, Qatar in 2022. I'm not like I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that you know these places are particularly like, morally obviously bad countries generally, and their citizens are bad. I'm saying that they are run. In, uh, by autocrats who stand to make absolutely obscene amounts of money off of these tournaments, and that's why they paid for them. So how did this uh, scandal kind of come to light, Ernesto? So basically what, what ended up happening was uh, the World Cup bidding process works and has, has sort of varied in, in a, uh, several years. But essentially what it, what it is is this, is that you have an executive committee this executive committee sort of votes based on its sort of delegation that sort of gives it, uh, you know, its decisions, its hay or nays on respective countries. Respective countries put together uh, these bids. And so these bids are, are essentially um, a dream team of personalities from whatever respective country wants to all of a sudden put forward, um, you know, put forward a, uh, a bid for a country. So, for example, in the, 20, uh, in the 2022 tournament that we're talking about, um, Bill Clinton was the head of the United States delegation right. with with a bunch of other soccer stars and things like that. And so, what ends up happening is because you know these countries are super interested in this World Cup, uh, they have to sort of garner votes. And so that's where we have the first sort of pin where uh, corruption is, uh, where the circumstances are ripe for corruption. And so, uh, as they're trying to garner support from the different regions, that's when you have sort of people that are middlemen that are shakers and movers that are all of a sudden, you know, sending or receiving money in order to get their block of countries to vote a certain way. So one of the big sort of names, two of the big names that we hear a lot of 
uh, in these sort of corruptions is uh, an individual named Jack Warner. Right. Jack Warner was a he was a I believe he was the head of the Trinidad and Tobago Soccer Federation, and so he also had a lot of clout with the Caribbean sort of uh, the Caribbean islands and and, and those and, and that area, which comprised of about thirty votes, thirty voters that that would essentially kind of uh, be a swing vote in a lot of time in a lot of mm-hmm. World Cup bids, right? And so he was someone that received a significant amount of money in order to sort of persuade his uh, sort of region, so to speak, to support a particular country. Uh, in for the South Africa bid, uh, it was it was rumored that he received upwards of ten million dollars to be able to sort of push his weight to support uh, a World Cup in South Africa. So just as a context. This bidding thing, like this, this corruption in the bidding process, happened way before uh, Russia and C- Qatar. I think what happened with Russia and Qatar was that it was just so egregious that people were just like, "Okay, this has to stop." Yeah. And so, uh, with the bids, with 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 these two particular bids, Russia, uh, you know, in one sense, they they kind of got away with it. I think in a, in a lot of ways for two reasons. One, they were much smarter. Uh, so, for example, when they were trying to collect documentation. With respect to allegations of bribery and corruption and receiving their bids, uh, FIFA put out a, in, in, in the FIFA report, they noted that uh, they couldn't receive the documents because Russia had already destroyed all their computers. <laughs> Shock. <Shocking. laughs> so uh, that's one of my favorite. Uh, I'm very, parts. very surprised they didn't back up those hard drives. Really, it, it really is shocking that the Russians would uh, would know exactly what was going to happen with this and, and already be prepared to deal with it. Uh that's so. That's fascinating. But the 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 cutter uh, uh, bid process was more, or at least they didn't do they didn't cover their tracks as well. So Qatar, exactly. So essentially, uh, there was this sort of clamor that the bids for the twenty twenty two World Cups were Australia, Qatar, uh, the United States, Japan, and South Korea um, bidding as as one, right? And so uh, the sort of early favorites were the United States. And I believe it was Australia. So Qatar was sort of been there, but not, you know, not really making a lot of noise because um, they don't have stadiums. So that's a big <laughs> well, It's also 145 minor, fucking degrees uh, during the summer. The minor point that there's nowhere to play and it's it's literally Tatooine. And they don't have a fucking national federation or a league or any or domestic league. <laughs> but, but hey, hey, they own an EPL team. So what do you want? Exactly. And so that's funny you mentioned that because so uh, basically in the, in the report, what came out was that Qatar had uh, this individual named Mohammed bin Hammam, uh, who was sort of their diplomat in, in ways is trying to just garner as much support as he could to, from everyone to try to vote for Qatar to sort of take this this vote moving forward. Right. And so, uh, you know, things were exchanged, anything from, you know, your basic money where you had these massive galas with these, you know, dinners, and there was $30,000 placed under each plate for the respective guests uh, to, um, you know, it's, it's one, the, one of the craziest ones. And I think it's funny, but it's also pretty depressing is that uh, one of the investigations that was brought to light um, by a, uh, by a ex uh, M, uh, MI6 officer was that um, it was discovered that Russia and Qatar had agreed to vote for each other in their World Cup bids uh, after brokering a deal for gas extraction in Siberia. So, 
All right. So when when we say when when so you know Gabe and I have described them as being literally like super villains, like literally sitting in a in a boardroom and dividing up the world's resources. It's like literally down to oil and gas contracts. It's just cartoon evil. It's I mean it's ridiculous, and I think it really shows two things: is one. Uh, the impact that soccer has the, the, uh, on the world and, and why this is so important that we can't think of FIFA just as sort of, uh, oh, well, that's, you know, it's sports, it's leisure. It doesn't have any serious impact. You know, in fact, these World Cups are so lucrative that countries are willing to do certain things uh, to, to, to ease or to facilitate these these things happening. And I think you're absolutely right that FIFA uh, essentially doesn't have oversight, right? So they can kind of get away with these little things and, and have nothing really essentially come out of it. Um, and, well, and it's ins- until now, right? Until, well, not even until now, but until recently, right? So that, I think, is a good uh, segue into the United States case against FIFA. So why don't we talk quickly uh, about, so I think that if, you know, I'm just trying to think of where our listeners are in this, but if you're a listener, you kind of probably understand that, FIFA is, you know, comically corrupt and, you know, does a bunch of shit that in if they were really supervised in any way, anyone would be able to say, look, this is illegal and, and people, they'd have to be cleaned up, right? But because they're sort of an extra governmental organization, it's kind of hard to get at them. So uh, this is where the United States government comes in and the United States government comes in through a series of different laws, uh, one of which... That and Ernesto wrote um, very interesting paper about in law school, and then that uh, you know he now practices under is uh, allows a sort of extraterritorial jurisdiction for the United States, and what that means is that basically that the United States law enforcement agencies can go and get people who don't necessarily have the most obvious ties to the United States. So what this is basically trying to say is the United States. You know, you may be wondering why on earth the United States is messing with FIFA. The United States doesn't really have a huge relationship with FIFA, blah, blah, blah. But actually, the United States has a way in. So, Ernesto, why don't you t- talk us a little bit about um, both what, you know, how, how the FCPA could apply and how, uh, uh, and how this, this case kind of unfolded generally? Sure. Uh, so I think the first nexus that the United States had uh, in this was obviously mm, – their interest in obviously hosting a world cup. Right. And so they, you know, put a bid in, they put a very serious bid in, they spent a lot of money. And when they felt that they sort of, you know, that, that Qatar was, you know, selected not for, you know, not based on the merits, they really kind of made a stink of it. Right. And so uh, a lot of countries sort of, you know, really came to arms and, and just the ridiculousness of a country with no stadiums, with a summers, with summers that are over a hundred degrees really sort of just was the tipping point. Right. And so what's up ladder did uh, to kind of save face was, he appointed uh, a former U.S. attorney named Michael J. Garcia uh, as the chairman of the investigative branch of the ethics committee that was created in FIFA a few years prior to this bidding process. And so Michael J. Garcia was uh, pretty much in charge of investigating the bids related to the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, right? And so uh, from the very beginning, he had a massive issue, which is someone on the ethics board that he would have to argue his case to or have to uh, discuss his findings was implicated in the bribes off the top. That, you know, obviously is an issue. Long story short, uh, he finishes his report, uh, systematic, systematic failures in, 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 compli- in compliance or control processes resulted in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars paid in bribes. Uh, the judge that heard that case in FIFA 
determined that despite these issues, uh, the potentially problematic facts and circumstances identified in the report uh, were not suited to compromise the integrity of the bidding process. That is just fucking nonsense. It's comically – just think about everything that we've just discussed and think about – think to yourself how on earth someone could – and then – and and also consider that the Garcia report is, is what, 300, 400 pages long in detailing all these transactions, all these secret meetings, including, like you said, Ernesto, these – Gala dinners where uh, Bin Haman would include these fucking things like thirty thousand dollars in cash on people's plates, and like the conclusion of these absolutely fucking comically inept and evil people was no, no, no. This is this is basically fair. Absolutely, and so essentially, what happened there was was two things. Is one, uh, the United States, as I had mentioned earlier, there was already sort of these rumblings of corruption and bribery regarding FIFA. And uh, some of which touched U.S. soil, which we'll, uh, we'll, I'll get into a little a little later. Come in, Chuck Blazer. Chuck Blazer was a big wig. Um, he was a big wig in Concacaf. He's an American citizen, and he was sort of the first guy that got caught. And he got caught not because of any sort of uh, sexy bribes or anything like that. Um, he got caught uh, because of taxes, which uh, Uncle Sam will always get his taxes. And so Chuck Blazer, when they confronted him with uh, Chuck Blazer, by the way, is the guy that owned uh, a floor of the Trump Hotel or Fuck, Trump Tower. I was just gonna fucking get into this. This is my favorite part about Chuck Blazer, where he owned where he owned a room exclusively for his cats, I believe, or dogs. <laughs> it's, just, it's just fucking hilarious. Think of like, and this is not just like fucking any. It's just a New York Manhattan, New York City apartment. And yeah. what I heard was that it was like a couple thousand square feet. And it was like maybe a ten thousand dollar a month apartment that he had just for his fucking cats, <laughs> right? And so it's ridiculous. So and this guy used, was like basically a soccer dad that somehow turned into a soccer executive for Congacao. Basically, he turns he, he turns into an informant for for uh, for the for the uh, Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice sort of commences its investigation right there into FIFA, right? And so uh, at this point, basically, this is sort of where. Uh, as the Department of Justice or, you know, as the U.S. authority, you kind of figure out what can we charge these individuals with, right? And so you had mentioned the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which essentially, uh, it, it's it's the law, it, it's two parts. It, it, it uh, prevents bribery or it outlaws bribery for foreign officials. Um, and then on the other part is a sort of an account and booking thing. And so the FCPA has uh, several sort of elements, but generally the law says that you can't pay or promise to pay uh, money or anything of value to a foreign official or an official of a public international organization, uh, knowing that that'll be passed on to, or knowing that it'll be passed on to another official, uh, in order to gain any type of, um, sort of advantage or any sort of unfair, you know, benefit business, anything like that. So usually it's applied to companies that are bribing in order to win some sort of, uh, oil deal or, you know, construction deal in another country, something to that effect. Right. So that's essentially when you kind of break break the elements down and you you say okay anti corruption international anti corruption foreign officials we could probably try to apply the FCPA so that was sort of the first knee jerk reaction that that everyone sort of had was that this was probably the the optimal law about it but there were a few stumbling blocks right the first being that uh, 
The first being that uh, FIFA isn't a public international organization as defined by it's, it has to be defined as a public uh, a public international organization under um, and under the executive order and also the uh, I believe it's the immunities the International Organization Immunities Act. Uh, so they didn't fall into that. So that that didn't that didn't really work. Uh, and then ultimately, I think what what the Department of Justice determined was that you know what it would be very difficult to even make an argument that. Some of these people at FIFA are foreign officials to be able to sort of prosecute and move forward. So what the Department of Justice did instead was that they began building cases under uh, bribery, uh, wire fraud, and money laundering, right? And so uh, and, and racketeering, sorry. And so under these laws, these are much easier to prosecute, uh, especially wire fraud. Wire fraud basically means that you, you're trying to sort of defraud someone of of, of, mo of money or anything of value. Uh, using uh, the wire, using wires, basically wires could be telephone, computers. Your your basic example of this type of law that you break is the Nigerian prince that's asking you uh, for money to get an access to an account that has forty million dollars, and they'll give you twenty if you do. Uh, so this is the kind of sort of law that they decided to use instead of the FCPA. And so what ends up happening is that they essentially go, you know, once they build their, build their cases, cases around this around fraud. <laughs> Library. Um, from there, that's when they sort of really zone in on on the FIFA officials. And the question that you had mentioned before, where you talked about, uh, you know, why the U.S. cared, like why does the U.S. care that you know FIFA is doing this stuff everywhere, you know, that's not in the United States. U.S. hasn't really done well in qualifiers this year, so I would, you know, I don't think really. <laughs> have too much of, of water with people. But I think what what um, what the Department of Justice did is that the corrupt acts that they focused in on was media and marketing rights for FIFA games in the Americas, which estimated which was estimated around $150 million. And also, this was really interesting, uh, the $110 million in bribes related to Copa America Centenario, which was going to be in the United, which was in the United States, right? And so these are the kind of, you know, these are sort of the sort of the, the 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 things that touched American soil that was brought to the U.S. District mm -hmm. Court in Brooklyn uh, for an indictment. And then this was these were the the people that were sort of rounded up were all, you know, had some sort of contact to the United States. So, for example, you have Chuck Blazer, Aaron Davidson, who are American citizens. Alejandro Buscano, Rafael Esquivel, mm -hmm. you know, these guys are all sort of uh, Coenbol uh, and, uh, and CONCACAF, and they had contacts with the United States. And then, and, and in all cases, there's quite a bit of money that's moving through United States accounts, right? And so at a basic level for these wired fraud cases, jurisdictionally, it makes it pretty easy for the DOJ when money's being wired into and out of uh, U.S. accounts, right? Exactly, exactly. So what we saw, what we saw a lot of was basically um, there was two examples. I want to say there was one where, um, ah, okay, right. So uh, on April 27, 2011, Ben Hamim completed a wire transfer of $35,000 into a bank in the United States um, for, you know, in, in exchange for sort of a support for the vote or the Qatar vote. Uh, and that happened several times, not just in, 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 um, in Washington D.C. and Florida and places like this. So what happens is that once you do that, you all you automatically are sort of fall into that jurisdictional hook that the United States needs. 
in order to apply not just, you know, wire fraud, but you could apply several other laws in that case. And that's sort of what, what the United States authorities did, is that they kind of went in that direction. And I think it's it was, it was very interesting for them to do that, and also uh, very stupid for FIFA to not realize that, you know, transferring bribes through a U.S. account would be more than sufficient to sort of get them wrangled into the United States. Um, right. Ar- arguably, if they just used euros and used European accounts, they, the U.S., because of the limitations on the FCPA you pointed out, would have a lot harder time going after anybody. And I think that's sort of a, a great point is that is that on top of just the wire fraud component or the wire, the sort of transfer of money into the banks, um, jurisdictional hooks for, for example, the FCPA have been as simple as emails, you know, confirming corruption, furthering furthering a bribe, confirming the payment, confirming how much would be paid, uh, you know, just a simple email that goes through routers in the United States. Um, and then the other the other big point that's even more sort of a, a loose connection, but a connection nonetheless, is the actual use of U.S. dollars, right? So a bribe could be paid, you know, outside the United States to a foreign official by another, you know, by someone that may have some sort of limited nexus to the United States, but ultimately using U.S. currency to complete a bribe. Has also been known to to to, uh, to be a jurisdictional hook. So, um, you know, as far as the FCPA is concerned, it's a very very broad law that could sort of really hook things in. But in this case, because there was more than enough uh, to meet the minimum contact threshold for jurisdiction, they just went with wire fraud, racketeering, uh, money laundering, and that right there was sort of enough to really lock down enough people to you know to convict. And and I think. Uh, to date, I believe there's um, about 21 people that have been convicted that have taken guilty pleas. So that's uh, huge. It's it's the kind of thing that you know in in a lot of other organizations would cause a huge shift in policy and generally uh, in, in just the corporate climate. It seems to me though, Ernesto, that you know, and now looking kind of prospectively in, in, into the future, it seems that not that much has changed at FIFA that we we can see, obviously. I mean, maybe they, you know, they're more careful and maybe there isn't as much bribery going on. I mean, we haven't seen a new bidding process or maybe it's going on right now or, or like the wrangling for it, but we don't know. I mean, like we haven't talked about where the 2026 and 2030 World Cups are going to play. So we'll have to see how that process plays out. But I, you know, my instinct that I've seen so far is 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 not to have a ton of faith that FIFA has made big changes. Yeah, and I think um, just to go back on the original point, twelve have been convicted of the twenty two original that were indicted. So that's still yeah, a very very big number. That for, is a huge people. number. I think the ones that aren't are going to be the ones that they're sort of going to use to try to move up the food chain a bit to to get other individuals. And so um, I think that's a very big thing that that'll kind of sort of continue individually, but. I think you're right. I mean, I think right, you know, in the very beginning, uh, you know, when this FIFA thing came out, everyone sort of was, you know, uh, you know, really up in arms, shocked. The United States all of a sudden had a really sort of their ears perked up with respect to, you know, uh, what kind of law we could apply to FIFA. Um, what is FIFA for a lot of Americans? And and I think it, it was a very good good moment there for uh, holding FIFA accountable. With that being said, um, you know, a lot of these people here. And I think this happens more just, you know, not just in FIFA, but in general organizations that are sort of uh, plagued by corruption scandals, bribery scandals, any type of, you know, mismanagement of, 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 of funds. I think that there has to be a change from the top, right, a, a cultural change, a tone from the top, so to speak. And I think that FIFA has 
way too many individuals that were very close to the situation that are still, uh, you know, in FIFA. Right. And so, uh, you know, just last week, I believe that there was already sort of, uh, you know, allegations that uh, one of the executives from FIFA that was ousted was already ready to sort of he noted that he was ready to sort of, you know, tell British Parliament everything that he knew, which could possibly have been the current president of FIFA right now. Right. So that's, you know, the, the, the issue right there is I think that we still have a lot of the people that were really sort of, if not involved, very passive, knowing the system that was in play. And so I think that's a, that's a huge issue. And, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges I had when I sort of began looking into this was uh, moving forward, what can FIFA do, right? What could possibly happen in order for FIFA to sort of really straighten up and, and have the internal controls needed to prevent this type of issue. And, and honestly, uh, it's difficult. I think the only sort of compa- comparable point is uh, the uh, International Olympic Committee. Hmm. So the International Olympic Committee, they had an issue with respect to bribes uh, around the late 90s, early 2000s, um, around like sort of the Salt Lake City uh, bids. And so what was discovered is I believe it was 7% of the sort of executives of the IOC were sort of determined to have been taking bribes. And so um, in the one that sort of came to, to light in the United States was one related to the Salt Lake City bid where Salt Lake, where, where scholarships were being given to either relatives or family members of, of executives or, or members directly of the IOC. Hmm. And so Senator George McConnell uh, investigated sort of this widespread corruption and did confirm that there was systematic corruption and sort of just a, a ridiculous mismanagement of money uh, of funds in the IOC connected to the desire to host Olympic Games, right? And so in 1999, what, what uh, Senator McConnell did was that he basically said, I'm going to introduce legislation in connection to the FCPA that would make it illegal for U.S. companies to work with the IOC. That's to sponsor, to host, to hmm. you know, partner with the IOC unless the IOC adhered to the recommended institutional changes that were recommended in the findings of, 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 this, of this sort of investigative body led by George McConnell. And so what ends up happening there is— you hit an organization where it hurts, which is the wallet. Yeah. Right? So I mean, that's all of a- historically, the best way to like deal with big corporate malfeasance, right, has been to really, it's like, I look, I'm all for, you know, Especially when it comes to FIFA, I'm all for jailing everyone involved because I fucking hate FIFA. But like, I think that <laughs> the the real like way to to ensure corporate compliance and to really really, I mean, like the the appropriate way to regulate this kind of stuff uh, in conduct going forward is through exactly what you're talking about, which is saying, you know, this kind of. Look, the whole purpose of your organization, even though FIFA pretends to be a nonprofit, the whole purpose of your organization is to make money for yourselves and the federations. If you don't shape up, we are going to prevent, and especially the United States has a very good way of dealing with this, right, which is basically saying any American corporation that does business with FIFA will have XYZ penalty if FIFA doesn't or, you know, doesn't comply with this, that kind of that kind of answer. And, you know, historically, that's been a very good motivator for companies, um, you know, to, 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 to change their, to change their practices. So, uh, I think this is a, that is actually a really strong model. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think you're right. I think that, you know, ultimately it's sort of the, the character stick, right. And I think 
on one end, one one component, I think this has to be a multi-pronged sort of thing, right, is that on one side, you have to be able to prosecute the individuals responsible as a deterrent, right? That no, you know, sort of high-ed, high-up executive is, uh, you know, too powerful to be extradited to the United States to face trial. Or, I mean, this is the other, this kind of segues into the second prong, which is, you know, the fact that FIFA is such a global entity, right? It does, it's sort of, you know, it's domiciled or it's incorporated in, in Switzerland, right? So that's that's one point. But it does face exposure through its confederations, but more importantly, through its uh, through the, the the soccer federations, yeah. right? Different countries, and so we what we've seen with the FCPA, and just for exactly for the for the for the reason that you had mentioned, uh, which is the the evil e word in law, which is extraterritoriality, that are these countries now like the UK and France with with Sapandu with. Uh, well, is much more corporate, but you know, with with, with sort of this push mm-hmm. of anti-corruption legislation, and with the UK Bribery Act in the United Kingdom, you have this sort of push of domestic uh, anti-corruption laws that are really going to sort of put under pressure the question of whether or not we treat, if we can't treat FIFA like an international, like an international public organization, if we can't treat the federations right, like Concacaf, UEFA like uh, international public organizations. Can we treat uh, state or, or, or country federations, country soccer federations, as a state-owned entity or a state-owned company or a state-owned uh, organization that all of a sudden will open up liability through, through, those, through those means, right? That's fascinating. And, and so what you can do is, for example, like in the UK, these individuals that sort of are members of FIFA or the leaders of FIFA or the minister, they're, they're minister positions, right? The Ministry of Sport. The Ministry of Sport is a public position. It's a public official position. Unlike the United States, we don't, we don't have that. But the majority of other countries or a good, a good number, a sizable portion of those countries do have sort of this nexus with government, right? With government officials where the argument, you know, it may not succeed this is all in theory but it the argument could be made that that does open liability up for the soccer federations and through the soccer federations could deter or could alter the way that fifa works in general right and so that's for me i think another sort of second prong that that really is a way to really kind of push uh you know push fifa to sort of reform because that's essentially what they what they really need is is ultimately they need to be able to, to sort of internally create these, you know, mechanisms that that are going to try to prevent the mismanagement of money, which is no different than any other sort of major corporation. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. Could I ask? So generally, how <laughs> with the the U.S. kind of taking the lead in, you know, legally trying to prosecute these cases and pushing towards um, towards change for FIFA, and you've outlined some good ways the U.S. could do more to promote change for FIFA and, and some other countries, but like, how, just more normatively, how do you feel about the U.S. being the one that's taken the lead here as opposed to uh, Europe or Switzerland or other countries that might also have a claim for, for taking the lead? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a neutral thing? Um, I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think it's fascinating for two reasons, because uh, on one end, uh, you know, the United States, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't really care that much about soccer when you compare it to football or basketball or whatever national pastime we have, right? Uh, on the other end, that sort of indifference is exactly what probably gave the rise to be able to sort of like assert and you know apply its legal its legal principles or legal you know legal directives 
in a matter like this without being uh, colored by any type of influence that FIFA may have domestically, right? Is that if you have a soccer crazy, a soccer crazy country, uh, FIFA has a lot more clout there and their people are much more powerful there uh, with a few promises of, you know, a new, you know, a new state of the art soccer facility for, you know, for kids or uh, the possibility of hosting a World Cup or the possibility of hosting a, you know, any other type of tournament. I think with the United States, um, I think obviously extraterritoriality is always a very tricky thing, right? It's something where um, you generally want to be sort of, uh, uh, you generally want to avoid applying your domestic laws into a sort of foreign realm unless there's some sort of domestic uh, issue or a domestic injury that your country is suffering, right? In this case, the, the idea would sort of be, you know, bribery is bribery, and it would happen in the United States. So we have an interest in prosecuting that bribery uh, if it happens in the United States to prevent bribery either being conducted in, uh, you know, or, or furthered within the United States, mm -hmm. right? Uh, on a larger scale, though, I think that, you know, accountability for any sort of major organization whether it be FIFA, whether it be the UN, whether it be the World Bank, whether it be any type of, of public and international organization that's sort of outside the generally constructed nation-state type of relationships that, that, that the United States has with everything else in, in the international community, uh, there needs to be an accountability that the United States should be pushing forward. And it's not just because, you know, to ensure that soccer is okay and that the right team gets the right bid, but it's generally, a, as I had mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the, you know, the clout that FIFA has, the strength that it has, the sheer scope of this organization in the global scheme of things uh, is, is, one, it's primed for corruption if there's no sort of controls. And two, it has a serious impact in, in the world, right? So, you know, for example, you have these polit the political impact, for example, is what we were talking about, the the gas deal between Qatar and Russia that allegedly happened, right? Uh, the, the, you know, soon after the World Cup, you know, the Petrobras scandal happened where right. the, essentially right. the Brazilian economy collapsed and it was all due to like just major, 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 major corruption in the country that was sort of kind of exposed for what it was after Brazil got rocked seven to one. Right. And then, you know, the last one and honestly, the saddest sort of uh, external implication that this type of bribery has in the world is, is something like the human rights violations in Qatar. Right. Right. Where you have these sort of migrant workers literally dropping dead building these stadiums that should have never sort of been built in the first place had it not been for this corrupt bid, you know? And so I think that ultimately, I think there's two reasons why the United States sort of took the the, the initial sort of gung-ho approach and really kind of came at FIFA is one. Uh, I think that sort of the, the United, the U.S. nexus was strong enough there for them to really justify, you know what, uh, FIFA is FIFA understood, but you're not going to pay bribes or further any sort of bribery or corruption in the United States and get away with it. Uh, and then second, obviously, is the fact that, uh, you know, the United States does have these tools at its disposal legally uh, to be able to sort of uh, give it sort of a bit of a bit more flexibility in the in the uh, in the sort of uh, implementation or the application of these laws, both domestically in the United States and also extraterritorially whenever there's even a minimum uh, contact with the United States that I think that many other countries probably don't have. I think that the idea of, of really strong anti-corruption laws in the in the world and not just, you know, sort of on paper, but actually really, you know, at, you know, 
actively prosecuted and actively enforced in the same sort of like strength that the sort of you know paper law requires is very uh, is still very limited. Right. Uh, we we're seeing an increase. Like for example, the UK Bribery Act now is sort of which is sort of known as the the, the toughest anti anti uh, corruption law in the world. Uh, it's a, it's only been recent where they're actually really sort of pushing and using it to sort of sniff out corruption, you know, as as was the case with Rolls Royce. But I think for the most part, um, the United States has always sort of shown a, a really big interest in in, uh, in in battling corruption. And I think that you know, unlike some of the other things that the United States have done uh, historically, where we've always sort of had like a, a sort of backdrop interest in 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 in, in something. Uh, and we kind of used the law as a justification for us, you know, moving forward in that way. I think with with FIFA, I don't I don't think that the U.S. really had sort of some like uh, backhanded sort of plan or backhanded sort of agenda. At least I hope not in prosecuting these FIFA officials. Right. Um, so with that being yeah, no, 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 no. Go ahead, finish up. Um, yeah, I'm interested. Well, with, with, that, with that being said, I think you know, obviously, the fact that everything sort of really quieted down. Uh, in the past, you know, couple months, I think is is it's a deafening silence, right? I mean, it's all of a sudden just kind of went away uh, simultaneous to the simultaneous to the announcement that uh, that that Mexico and the United States now want to host the 2026 uh, World Cup, which uh, you know, again, it, it's I think I think what you had initially said, Gabe, is a hundred percent correct that um, there has to be some sort of change. And as long as there's not that change, which we haven't seen really at this point, um, it's, I don't, I don't see how FIFA is going to be able to root out and prevent these type of things from happening again. So, which is, uh, yeah. no, I'm sorry. I was, uh, I, I keep thinking like, uh, 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 that, that we're, um, uh, we're, uh, we're getting to this place where I, I, I feel like we all like kind of see where this is, you know, where this FIFA thing has to go, like the next steps, right? Like ultimately on some level, like this is not the end of the line for this case, right? So it's not just a case of, well, the United States took, you know, took down a couple people, Blotter resigned and that's kind of it. And FIFA is going to keep chugging along. It does seem like there will be another shoe to drop eventually. I think so. I mean, I think ultimately, unless there's, you know, apart from just like I, like I'd mentioned the sort of, uh, Going after the, the the federations and the individuals, which is which will be very very strong deterrence in the future, um, unless there's sort of some. In my opinion, I don't think internally FIFA will be able to for a long time develop uh, the type of ethical and compliance mechanisms needed in order to prevent this type of bribery or corruption from happening uh, in connection to World Cup bids or any anything else really related to FIFA or hosting events or even votes, right? I mean, vote, the, the voting uh, for, for the executive position, for the presidency, for things like that is still very sort of rampant. The, uh, the corruption seems to be very rampant. And I think, um, you know, the, the sort of the last recommendation that I, I actually read from another scholar that I thought was very fascinating is to maybe try to implement external monitors yeah. uh, on, onto FIFA and, and not just FIFA, but also uh, the the delegations that are bidding for World Cup bids, right? And I think much 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 like the way that we've done with sort of uh, um, international corporations or multinational corporations, once they've sort of re- you know reached a 
settlement with the DOJ or with the SEC, that a lot of times they're assigned a monitorship in order to sort of monitor the progress that they're making in implementing the changes that they were recommended to make, right? That's the same thing that happened with Penn State University uh, with the with their football program is that they had a monitor that sort of made sure that they implemented all across the board all the recommendations that they needed before they got sort of a, a, a bill of good health. That's that's and a really cool idea. Here's one that I just – and this is uh, – we should finish up because we have our uh, – Running up against the deadline that I set for us um, in terms of total time, but I this has been a great conversation, so I don't want to cut it too uh, too short. What I heard, and Evan, we I think we may have discussed this maybe not on the show, but like at a bar or whatever. But I thought um, one of the coolest ideas that I heard about this was the potential idea that, and this is it's a totally out there, you know, like pie in the sky. This never happened, but a very cool idea that would force FIFA to comply with very rigorous. Uh, standards and very rigorous oversight would be registering as a public company on the SEC. Uh, and that so that is it's a totally never going to happen because of what the SEC requires. But I actually it's the kind of thing, you know, generally that, that you're kind of talking about right now in terms of forcing them into a system where they have to uh, be subject to some sort of outside organization that's going to follow them and monitor them closely. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I think that that would be uh, a, a, a like like you said like a very sort of a hypothetical situation where they where they try to register and 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 when they where they register and move forward like that I think that would give the exact checks and balances that we're looking for um, ultimately you know as as you and I both know I think uh, you, will that happen unlikely because the people <laughs> that are in power like to be in power and they don't they don't feel the need to really sort of respond to anyone outside of their sort of inner circle, which is exactly the problem that got them into the position that they're in now. So I think ultimately in in a pragmatic sense, I think the only way that, that FIFA will really, really change is if the United States and other countries really turn up the heat with their anti-corruption laws, really go after these individuals and um, ultimately the sponsors, you know, the sponsors realize, you know what, this is way too much of a compliance risk for me to be dealing with FIFA. And all of a sudden something happens where something I do or some sponsorship I have is misconstrued as a bribe and then I'm out of luck under some sort of law like the FCPA, right? I think, um, you know, that was probably, that was something that Nike was very, very scared about. Well, wasn't ever officially announced that it was Nike, but Nike apparently signed a 10 year deal with the, um, with the Brazilian football, uh, federation, uh, to sort of guarantee that they would represent or that they would, uh, you know, be the official sponsor for Brazil, for the next 10 years. Uh, but then, you know, apparently that money part, part of that deal was struck based on bribes that apparently an American company, uh, had, had paid that American company later sort of was rumored to be Nike. Right. And so these are the sort of the nexuses where, where these corporations are now really facing a high exposure to risk. Uh, if they continue to work with entities like, like FIFA or, these sort of uh, crooked soccer federations uh, that if they get caught up in some sort of bribery, you know, in some sort of bribery investigation, and it turns out that some, you know, corporation or sponsor is paying them in order to sort of guarantee that they'll be the national team's main logo or something to that effect, it, it does bring some, some, some risk, right? So yeah. I think ultimately 
the sponsors are the ones that are good right now in the short term going to be the ones that are going to be able to try to control FIFA by just, you know what, closing the purse. Yeah, exactly. Just- exactly. Um, well, I think that's um, probably as good a place as any to leave it, considering how much more there is to say on this topic. Ernesto, I just want to thank, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank, thank you, Evan, for, for having me. It's, uh, I love talking about this. I'm sure uh, if I ever meet up with you guys at a bar, we'll talk about this for another three hours. But um, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, good luck with this blog. I, I love the idea. The concept is awesome. Anytime we can sort of mix soccer with anything else, I, I'm a huge, huge fan of. And, uh, and also the, the Real Madrid blog is also just an excellent, excellent site. All right. Thanks very much, man. Appreciate it. Um, so for those of you on Man Madrid, this is the end of the show. Uh, and uh, uh, on Let's Week Football, Evan and I will be back next week. So thank you all so much for listening. Um, talk to you soon. There's no hiding the truth. I'm the genuine positive proof. I bust shots through the roof, set the hostages loose. Shoot. One might got to give real a minute, but it will recognize the air life before the beat finish. Bleak Timmons and winners, let him to seek vengeance with everything.